So in case you didn't know, this Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. It's the Philadelphia Eagles versus the New England Patriots. Um, my dad grew up right outside of Philadelphia, so I grew up watching Eagles games. Um, I'm now a Jaguars fan. I've turned my back on the Eagles. But uh, Rusty came up to me, who's in the choir, and he was like, hey, who picked the songs today? And I was like, why? What, what are you talking about? He's like, look at our offertory song. And if you look on the bulletin, it says, they shall soar like eagles. <laughs> so we know the Lord's favor is with the eagles. Uh, <laughs> All right, now let's set our minds on things above. So the Gospels give us so much about the life of Jesus, about the circumstances around his birth, about his earthly ministry, his teaching, his life, his, his miracles, his friends, his death, his resurrection. But the Gospels give us almost nothing about his childhood. From the time he's two years old, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus return from their flight to Egypt, to the time that he's 30, we know nothing except for this passage that we're going to look at today. It's one passage from when he's 12 years old, but contained in this little passage, it tells us so much about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and so much about who we are deep down and what God has called us to do. So if you don't have your Bibles open, go ahead and open them up to 852 in the Pew Bible. We're going to start in Luke 2, verse 41. Luke 2, verse 41. It says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, as was their custom. And so it was required of all Jews, if they were devoted to God, and Mary and Joseph were devoted to God, to go up every single year to Jerusalem at during one of the three feasts. And so they chose to go up at the Feast of the Passover. And the Feast of the Passover was the most important feast. And they went up every year at this time to celebrate the liberation of the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. Now, Jesus went up with them this time and something different happened. They went up and then Mary and Joseph left like they normally do and traveled back with their throng of friends and acquaintances and family members back to Nazareth a whole day. And then the passage tells us this. They realize that Jesus is not in their traveling group. Now, if you're a parent and you've ever lost your child in a crowded place or maybe forgotten them at a rest area or something like that, you know the horror of that moment where you realize that they're not with you, that you have lost your child. Now imagine knowing that you've lost your child and you're a whole day away. And so Mary and Joseph frantically return back to Jerusalem, a whole other day's journey. And then they spend a third day traveling around, looking everywhere in Jerusalem, and lo and behold, there's Jesus in the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers, asking them questions and showing his understanding, how even as a 12-year-old, how wise he is and how much he knows God's word. He's learning and, and growing there at the temple. And this is what it says, when they saw this, they were astonished. And his Mary, his mother, said to Jesus, 
Jesus, we are so sorry that we left you behind. Oh my gosh, we feel so bad. Is that what she said? No. No. I want you to notice here just the tenseness of her voice. It says this, Son, why have you treated us so? It's an accusation. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And that word great distress means agony, anguish. For three days we've been in anguish looking for you, our lost son. And then I want you to note two things about Jesus' response. The first is this. This is the first words of Jesus that we hear in the Gospels. These are the very first words of Jesus right here that we hear. So if you had a red letter Bible, this would be the first point that you see red letters in the entire Bible. And then I want you to notice his disposition. Listen to what he says. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is totally calm. He's totally at peace. He is totally secure with who he is, where he is, and what he's doing. And that's an utter contrast to his parents and the state that they're in. And so the question that this text begs is how is Jesus so secure? How does he have such security in who he is and what God's called him to do? Especially in light of what was probably one of the most powerful cultural forces that would be working against him in this moment. And I want to use that to point to Jesus, but also to help us. How can we be secure in who God has made us and what he's called us to do with all of the dominant cultural forces that are pushing against us? And so, wrapped up in this passage right here, we see that Jesus has authority He knows his authority. The reason he has such security is he knows that he has authority. That's my first point. I got two main points. That's the first one. That Jesus knows his authority. Therefore, he is absolutely secure. Now, notice what his mother says. She says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So one of the strongest cultural forces that would drive a young man in the ancient Near East would be the traditional view of you do what is expected of you. The choices you make, who you are, is what your family expects of you. And that's still dominant in the Eastern world. It's also dominant in Africa, this idea of a traditional view of authority, that you do what is expected of you in society. And you don't bring honor, dishonor to your family. And yet, here we see Jesus with a different authority. So what's his authority? Well, is Jesus just starting teenage rebellion, right? Is this like Jesus's way of saying, like, I'm not going to do it your way anymore. I'm doing it my own way, right? Somebody in the early service came to me and said, like, your hair's getting long, Dan. You're starting to look like a hippie. Um, Is that what Jesus is doing, is asserting his own, this is myself? No. So he's not capitulating to the traditionalist view, but he's also not capitulating to this Western individualism that I make myself. I make my own priorities. I make my own way. 
Instead, his authority comes from God. Notice they say, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus says, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus knows his authority. He knows the one that he ultimately answers to. And that's his father. And that's where he gets his security. Because when we know our authority as God, we can be utterly secure. So what's your authority? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, probably most of us would say, yeah, you know, my authority is God. That's true. But what do you feel that's pressuring you? What expectations do you feel that might not be God's expectations for you? Who, who are you trying to live up to? And maybe I could phrase it in this uh, kind of way. Who are you most afraid to disappoint? Because oftentimes that's who our authority is. It could be your parents. That you know in your, in your mind what your parents have expected of you. Even if they died years and years ago, you can still hear them in the background. Don't do that. Hey, we don't do that. Or you shouldn't, that's not a good use of your time. Or maybe it's your friends or your boss. And you're afraid to disappoint them. And so you find yourself trying to live up to their expectations. Even though you know that they're throwing some things out of balance. Or maybe you're you're even doing some things you shouldn't be doing. Or maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've identified with, I've got to make myself. I've got to be totally self-dependent. I'm a self-made person. But you feel like I never live up to, to what I should be. And Jesus says, if you want true security, have God as your authority. See, what Jesus knew as a 12-year-old was that when we have God as our authority, we can be secure. Because the reality is that God made you. He knows you better than anybody else in this world. He knows your strengths, and he also knows your weaknesses and limitations. He knows your sins that you might try to hide, and your failures. And guess what? He loves you unconditionally. Jesus put it this way, are you tired? Are you tired of trying to live up to everybody else's expectations? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavenly burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, make me your authority. Because that's where you get true security. And the reality is that if God is our authority, that doesn't mean that he's an authoritarian figure in our life. But rather, notice Jesus' language. He says, I must be in my father's house. It's a relationship. So what Jesus wants when we are saying, God, you be my authority, is he wants a relationship. And we learn about what he wants us to do from our relationship with him. When we spend time with him, when we talk to God, when we spend time in his word, that's where we learn about the rhythms of his grace and the things that he's calling us to so that we can grow in that security that he wants for us. 
Now, the challenge is when we make God our authority, that means that you will have to disappoint other people in your life. That if you seek to follow God first and foremost, that there are going to be times that you have to disappoint your boss. There's going to be times that you have to disappoint your friends. There's even going to be time that you have to disappoint your family. And if you've been following Jesus for a while now, you know that. Or you, some of you might be feeling it right now. I know that if I know, do what God is calling me to do, or if I grow the way that God's calling me to grow, that there's going to be some disappointment from the people around me. But here's the reality. That's the only place we get true security. I had a preaching professor um, who I loved. He was one of my best teachers. And he said this. My dad growing up would say this. Son, there's two leeches in the world. Teachers and preachers. And he was a preaching professor. He was a teacher of preachers. So in order for him to obey God, to live under God's authority first and foremost, he had to be willing to disappoint his dad, I'm sure very greatly, in order to live into God's call for his life. So that's my first point. Is when we have God as our authority, we receive true security. My second point is this. That Jesus doesn't just know the authority of his father in his life, but he also knows the priority of his father. The priorities that his father has for him. He says this, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know, know that I must be in my father's house? And that can be translated two ways. My father's house can be translated as a location, like in the temple I must be here, but it can also be uh, translated as a task. I must be about my father's business. So you'll notice some translations have that. And so it's a dual meaning. And so Jesus knew what his priority was. And his priority was to be about his father's business. And it says, I must. So there's a sense of urgency that he had this boiling knowledge of what he came to do. And because he knew what he came to do, he was able to say no to other things. He was able to live securely according to God's priorities. Now, the same goes for us. That's not just enough to say, like, God's my priority, God's my co-pilot. But we also are supposed to be living for his priorities, the things that he says are most important in our lives. Now, I had a mentor um, when I was in college by the name of Ray. Ray Siegler, um, and he was, uh, you know, was discipling a group of guys. Uh, I was a part of it, and he said this, gentlemen, there's two kinds of people in this world. People that respond to priorities or people that respond to pressure. People that respond to priorities or people that respond to pressure. And what he meant by that was there are going to be a lot of people in your life that are pushing their priorities on you and pressuring you to do what they want for your life rather than what your priorities should be, which is, God, what should my priorities be? We should always be asking, God, what are my priorities? We should be people that are responding first and foremost to priorities rather than pressure. 
So if I were to ask you, what do you think God's priorities are for you? I bet if I went around, everybody would probably share some things. They would probably say, well, family first is my priority. Or, you know, my job. I want to do well at my job. Or my friends. You could probably list your top three or four priorities in life. But the challenge with it is that oftentimes those priorities can be vague. Family first. Well, what does that mean? What are you trying to do in your family? Or, okay, I'm going to do good at my job. Am I just trying to be a good employee? What am I trying to do? And so in our text, if we see the first words of Jesus tells us his authority, the Father, well, the very last words of Jesus, right before he ascends, tell us his priority for us. Does anybody know what they are? What's his priority? The very last words of Jesus. Yeah. Go forth and make disciples. All right. Get this. This was accidental. This is Jesus' words. It starts with this. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That is Jesus' priority for you. If you want to live with security, if you want to know that I have lived a life that God's called me to live, say, I'm going to base it all around the call to make disciples. So that means in each of those sections of your priorities, in your family, are you intentionally seeking to try to make disciples? Are you seeking to lead your spouse intentionally to Jesus? And with your kids, are you seeking to lead them to Jesus? Are you doing anything intentionally to make disciples of them? With your job. Now, you got to be careful and creative here with how you make disciples in your workplace. Or otherwise, we'll be talking to HR all the time. Like you got to stop making disciples. But there's, there's simple things that we can do. For example, modeling. What it's like to work with excellence and diligence while not falling into workaholism. The reality is, we live in a workaholic world. And if you model what it's like to walk that line, to honor God with your work but not to idolize your work, people will notice a difference in you. Or, open your eyes. Just say, who, God, have you put in my life, in my workplace, that I might be able to share Jesus with? And start praying for them. Invite them to come to Alpha. Go out to lunch and be intentional with those relationships. So I would encourage you, don't just have vague priorities. Build all of your priorities around Jesus' priority, which is to make disciples. And I got to see this beautifully lived out in the life of that guy, Ray. He died in January, 58 years old. And I wasn't able to be there. I found out late. But my friend that he reminded me of that saying, you know, live according to priorities, not pressure. And he said, you should have been at the funeral, man. It was so beautiful because he lived it. He was like, there were so many people that came and were telling stories of his influence. 
disciple, he discipled different businessmen. He mentored different guys. And he said, but the most amazing thing was the testimonies of his daughters. And the way that they said that time and time again, their dad would lovingly and gently point them to Jesus. See, Ray lived with security because he made Jesus's authority his authority. And he made Jesus's priorities his priorities. Now, I want to finish with this story. There's a silent transformation that happens in the gospel account. Because if you notice, this, this story right here ends with Mary and Joseph saying they did not understand the saying that was spoken to them. And then they went down and came to Nazareth, and, was, and Jesus was continued to be submissive to his parents. But then it says this, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Something, a seed was planted in her that day about who her son's authority was and what her son's priorities were. And that seed grew and grew and grew. And then 21 years later, she returned to Jerusalem for a Passover feast alongside her son. But this time she knew Jesus' authority. She knew that God was the one that he was following. And she walked alongside her son so that he could be obedient to God's word in his life, which was to go to the cross. And she watched, I'm sure with anguish, as her son was nailed to a cross, hung on that cross, and his priority, Jesus' number one priority was to die for you and to die for me. And you see, G Mary, her priority became Jesus' priority. And she never tried to stop Jesus. She never got in the way. She said, Jesus, your authority is my authority. Your priority is my priority. And therefore, she was willing to lose her son for three days to sin and death with utter security just staying with Jesus while he was obedient to the Father. You see, when our authority is Jesus' authority, and when our priority is Jesus' priority, we can live with ultimate and true security. So let's pray.